Amen. Good morning, everybody. You know, I grew up in a traditional church, and my son goes to a Catholic school, and I'm always a little jealous because they have really good traditions, like the head of school at the assembly will say something, and everybody will know what to say in unison. And I think that we Protestants, especially of the interdenominational sort, we stink at traditions because we've only been doing this for a little while. So I think we should borrow from the traditions that comprise the unified body among us. And so growing up, uh, in the church that I grew up in and all across the world this morning, the preacher comes up and says, Christ the Lord is risen today. And the people all say, hey, don't say it yet, Chad. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. Okay. All right. Since you let the cat out of the bag, what are they supposed to say? Okay. All right. So everyone says that. And, and like Catholics have been doing it for 1800 years. So they all know to say it. And it's so cool. And uh, it communicates something of like solidarity. And so uh, why don't we try it? All right. <clears throat> Let us pray. Oh, no, nah, that's not what you say. You say, Christ the Lord is risen today. He is risen indeed. Ah, see, so don't you feel like solidarity with the body of Christ all over the world? Happy Easter Sunday. What a glorious day in Colorado. What a glorious year, man. I love living here. I love celebrating God's creation. This ski season was fantastic. I skied with my boys in powder above my knees. Just epic ski days this year. Did anybody have uh, a, at least one powder day? And then in the fall, Mari and I mountain biked in Crested Butte as the leaves were turning and the wildflowers were fading. And I think this is just the pinnacle of goodness. What an incredible world we have to, to live in and enjoy. It radiates the goodness of God, reflects his glory. And all that is so true. And that's what we focus on and tell ourselves is the prevailing reality on Easter. And at the same time, Eight people short of 46,000 were lost in Turkey this year in one natural disaster. And their families are likely not thinking about the powder day they had, but the grief that will never fully settle even after their cities are rebuilt. War continues to ravage Eastern Europe the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia suffer while the people of Europe and Asia watch nervously to see if World War III is going to erupt. Everywhere you choose to open the news, there's grim reminders of the brokenness of this planet. I was reading about the great Pacific garbage patch a conglomeration and a fusion of plastic bottles and other trash that many geologists estimate is larger than the state of Texas is floating amorphously somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. Man, this world is beautiful. And man, this world is broken. And to live in a human body, whether you know Jesus or not, is to live in the angst and the tension of those competing realities and to wonder, what am I supposed to do with this? Where do I land? Maybe on one day, if we're feeling it, we land on this side and then something bad befalls us. 
And the next day, we land on that side. Nothing captures the tension of this duality, in my mind, artistically at least, like the really powerful Robin Williams movie from the 1980s called Good Morning Vietnam. Do you remember that? What a wonderful world. What a messed up world. Did you know that over 20 million people currently live in a state of forced labor worldwide? Two million children alone are trafficked every year. Two million. There are more people enslaved on planet Earth today than in the entirety of the 350-year history of the transatlantic slave trade. And it's not just a duality of haves and have-nots. It's not just that their reality is grim while mine is fortunately free of such suffering. I, like you, live inside of a human body and on one day feel like I'm on top of the world, just like Risa alluded to in inviting you to share your prayer and praise stories. On the next day, feel like I'm buried at the bottom of the ocean. I know me and I am good. I'm a genuinely good person, except when I'm not. And I loathe what comes up in me and I can mask it, but not from myself. And I lament it and sometimes I grow so weary of it. I just want to be with Jesus. Other days I feel like, man, this Christian life, we've kind of hit the tipping point. It's kind of gotten easy. And then boom, off the cliff. It is to be a human the best of times and the worst of times. And I look around and groan and sigh with so much pain and so much strife and so much struggle. I find myself vibing with Kelly Clarkson's grown-up Christmas list. No more lives torn apart than wars would never start and time, time would heal all hearts and everyone would have a friend and right would always win, and love would never end. This is her grown-up Christmas list. In the midst of this pervasive, complex, and tense reality, we come to Easter. And I feel like on Easter, as I look back over the years, that I am to hide one of those two realities. Either to say, everything is good. It's all coming up roses. The songs on Easter are in major key. The backdrops are all pastel. If I'm suffering or if I'm grieving with a friend or with the broken and weary world, this isn't the place to bring it. This isn't the day to say it. That kills the vibe. Or on Easter, if I'm feeling the brokenness, but choosing instead to celebrate all that is good, the flowers blooming, Jesus 
bursting forth from the tomb in glorious victory. I'm supposed to think about how this world, you know, isn't my home. Jesus died so I could go to heaven, right? And so I don't know how to be. I don't know how to land. I don't know how to show up on Easter in a way that is whole and authentic and fully experiencing the life that I, that we all live. It's a bit of a conundrum. Do you go to church ever or maybe go to church once in a while or on Easter and know the drill? We pretend that that's what we want. You know, Jesus died so we could go to heaven, right? So we pretend that what we want isn't to be here in this broken and weary world, but to go be with him, like to sit on the clouds and, I don't know, play harps and sing. Oh, there's ever so much singing in my childhood conception of heaven. And I like singing a little bit, but I kind of end up mouthing the words after a bit because I don't sing really well and I grow weary of it. And if what I'm going to do for eternity is sing, with scantily clad children on clouds, I'm not really comfortable saying what I actually feel, which is, I don't know if I want that. I'll take the powder day. Uh, sacrilegious? Did I just say that out loud? I mean, give me scuba diving with sea turtles in Maui over speedo-clad cherubs with harps. Just saying what you're thinking every Easter. (laughs) Can I bring my whole self, my whole experience of living to this day? This day, I would contend, commemorates the single most significant day in human history. Not symbolically, not, hey, this is Christianity Day, so if we identify culturally as a Christian, we go to Christianity Day, kind of like if we are American and at least understand the rules of football, we go to a Super Bowl party on Super Bowl Day, right? That's football day. This is religion day. Apart from that, this remembers, contemplates the most important day, I would argue, in all of human history. And so that begs the question, why is Easter so significant? Why do people turn out in billions all over the world in pastel shirts on this day? Colossians chapter one teaches that Jesus is the beginning. And listen, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus' death and resurrection kickstarted what scripture describes here and elsewhere as a reconciliation. That word, reconcile, comes from a word in the Greek, and I'm not going to get into the original language. No one wants to put on the thinking cap that much on Sunday when you're wearing such a nice pastel shirt and going to brunch shortly afterward. But just suffice it to say that that word is specific and infrequently used and means to redeem or to renew, but in a particular context. One scholar observes it is reconciliation, that word, the restoration of a relationship of peace which had existed and has been disturbed. 
You might say that this reconciling is making right again. And that's what Jesus did when he rose from the grave. It says he was the firstborn from the dead here in this passage. That implies there will be others. His victory wasn't the one-off, the exception that proves the rule. He was merely the first to experience the new recreation order, the reconciliation of all things. The resurrected body that Jesus got foreshadows how we will spend eternity with Christ. The resurrection of Jesus was like the green flag. It started the race of the new covenant era. And it was an indicator of what's to come. As he was reconciled, resurrected to a new era of creation, so we will be resurrected after him. Ephesians chapter 1 says, I pray that you will understand, understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is, listen, the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Did you hear it when we sang it this morning? You sang it or you mouthed it, lip synced it or something. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in those of us who believe. It's not a one-off. It's not exclusive to God. It's not unhuman. It's the most essentially human thing. We were pardoned by the cross. Our debt canceled. The price for our sinfulness paid the price for all sin that we have committed and will ever commit. And now, your life can be restored. That's what the resurrection after his death signifies. It can be restored after the pattern of Jesus' own resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, a new creation, the old life gone, a new life begun. And all of us, all of us in Christ experience this. It's a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, who reconciled us. It's the same word that's translated here, brought us back to himself, made us new again. It's that same special Greek word that's used only a scant handful of times in the New Testament. The resurrection says that not only have your sins been forgiven, it was accomplished and it was finished when Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the price for our sins and satisfy the wrath of God. There's no more anger. There's no more wrath. It has been extinguished. There is welcome. But I can imagine if it ended at the cross, feeling forgiven, but left for dead. Hopeful for the next life, but hopeless for this one. See, the resurrection says you get to begin again with authentic hope of doing better. And I can tell you in 30 years of walking with Jesus, I have experienced this in my own life in a way that I can't prove to you 
has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection, but that is realer to me than the platform I stand on. Some people find this fact obscured because they just are more naturally generous people. Like, do you guys know Shanna? Shanna, before being a Christian, was a better Christian than I will likely ever be. Just is intrinsically kind and selfless and gracious and sweet. I am intrinsically none of those things, and it sucks, and I feel jealous of her. Right, right there. See, I repent, Lord, of being jealous of Shanna. I mean, it's authentic. I'm not even making a joke. You laugh, but it's sadly true. There's those that are like instant Christian, just add water, you know, like the carnation instant breakfast of the late 80s. And then there's the rest of us like me, anyone like me, who you can see bit by bit, little by little, inch by inch, Christ forming in you and every bit of ground that's reclaimed and every bit of goodness that comes out of you, you know is God because you know who you are and you know where you've been. He makes us new, not just forgiving our past, not just admitting us to eternal life, but restarting our lives. That's real lasting, temporal, as well as eternal hope. The same power that resurrected Jesus is little by little and bit by bit, make no mistake about it, resurrecting me. And it can be resurrecting you. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It says in this passage that we're looking at, God was pleased through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Now, I looked that up in the Greek. It means all things. It means exactly what it means in English. There's no idiomatic haze to filter through. There's no lost in translation. He is doing for his entire creation what he is doing for me. Perhaps I hope what he is doing for you. The same power that resurrected Jesus is resurrecting this weary and broken and beautiful world. And this is the reconciliation work in its fullest context. I'm trying to explain a concept that's subtle. Bear with me. I experience the world in two parallel lanes. It is simultaneously the best of times and the worst of times. I frankly am glad that heaven is misconceived as cherubs playing harps and singing forever because I like powder and mountain bikes and swimming with sea turtles. I like this world, and as it turns out, God does too. There is this tawdry, wrong-headed notion of religion that has kept people at arm's length from God and viewing the resurrection as some obligatory attaboy Jesus once a year rather than the most significant event in human history. And that is... That is that... This world, broken and weary, is passing away. This is temporary and fleeting. God's had all he can stand because he can't stand no more. You know, like Yosemite Sam and the Bugs Bunny cartoons. That God's crumpled this thing up and he's throwing it in the trash can and hovering over it with a gas can and a match. And, you know, saying to you Christians, hey, get as many people out as you can before, boom, I incinerate it. But man, fed up with this thing. That's not how God looks at the world. He loves the world so much that he sent his one and only son 
You like his creation. I like his creation. As it turns out, fortunately for us, he likes his creation too. He is restoring it. He is reconciling, listen, me, you, but all of it, the whole enchilada, all things to himself. He's restoring this world. So our hope is not just some fleeting notion of getting to go to heaven one day, but that as Jesus said, starting on the day of the resurrection, heaven is coming here now, refacing, redeeming, restoring everything that we love that God created as a backdrop for us to enjoy and experience him. Pastor Nikki Gumbel put it this way, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into history. He's not looking to scrap creation. He's looking to restore it to its original design, fix what's broken and put it all to rights. And what this does for me, what Resurrection Sunday does for me is it integrates the two dueling realities. It reconciles an irreconcilable problem that the world is wonderful and the world is weary, that the world is beautiful and exhilarating and broken and heartbreaking. He is reconciling all things back to himself. N.T. Wright, the bishop of the Anglican church, observed what God did for Jesus at Easter. He will do not only for all who are in Christ, but also for the entire cosmos. It is the remaking of creation, having dealt with the evil that is defacing and distorting it. See, it's evil, sin, and the enemy who promulgates it and traffics in it that has defaced and distorted God's good creation out there and in here. Having dealt with it at the cross, Jesus began on the day of his resurrection, remaking it. And Revelation 21 says, behold, I am making all things new. I think the most important Question, perhaps, of Easter, though, isn't why is it so significant, but maybe why did he do it? It says in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, and we'll wrap it up here. The author and perfecter of our faith, who, listen, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, as it turns out, did it pragmatically. It wasn't altruistic. He's not some ascetic who just enjoys punishment, But for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We saw during Passion Week last Sunday with that beautiful Passion Sunday service, the stations of the cross that many of us experienced Jesus through on Good Friday, that solemn celebratory time with our service on Good Friday. If you walked with Jesus slowly through that week, you saw what he endured, being misunderstood and betrayed, being rejected and abandoned. He endured injustice, mockery, agony, isolation, and shame. He endured the overwhelming weight of all the sin of the world. Can you even imagine? So what was that joy? For the joy set before him, he endured all of that. Clearly, I get the endurance. What could be so joyful? What is it? Like it says, 
He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the joy that made it all worthwhile? Is it like a, a, a good seat next to God? Like, I'll take the third row and skip the, the suffering. What is it? The name that is above all names? Courtside tickets and all expenses paid vacation to Maui? Chick-fil-A for life? What did he get? What's the joy set before him that could possibly make that worth it? Friends, it's you. You're the joy. Redeemed, fully alive you, together with him in his good creation forever. That's the why. Ephesians chapter one said, God decided in advance to do this, to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Christ. Listen, he didn't get forced to do this. He didn't get painted into a corner and he didn't go, ah, they left me no other option. This is what he wanted to do. It gave him, listen, great pleasure. Hard to reconcile that with the suffering of the cross. He didn't enjoy the suffering, but he endured it willingly for the joy set before him. And the joy set before him is you. You're the prize. He wanted to do it. He willingly suffered. He chose to die. He looked at being betrayed and rejected. He looked at abandonment, injustice, mockery, agony, isolation, and shame, and said, bring it on. You're worth it. You're worth it to me. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He wrote in the Psalms that he cares about and delights in every detail of your life. I have this dog. He's a golden retriever named Hurley. He's, he's 12 years old now, almost. He's outlived his life expectancy. He, um, he's impossibly loving. Like I've never met a more loving creature. I, I used to say when he was a like five and still acting like a puppy. He, he got all of the fruits of the spirit except self-control. But as he's aged, I've watched the Holy Spirit work that into him. Now he is perfectly sweet and mellow. He, when we, no joke, ask Mari, we come into the house. He comes, doesn't care what kind of day I've had. Doesn't care whether I say hi, pay attention to him. Doesn't care whether I have an elevated tone in my voice. He doesn't care whether I took my shoes off or banged the snow out of my, the treads, he comes up to me and does this and does this and does a lap around me and then sits on my feet. And then he puts his head right there and hugs me. And did you ever get hugged by Nico? It's like that. It's like a Nico hug in canine form. He just keeps hugging and hugging and hugging. And sometimes I've thought, I'll see how long he can hug. I'm gonna out hug him, can't do it. I'm there like 20 minutes later, still scratching his ears. And he's just, his existence is, well, it's turkey bones and loving us. Like the turkey bones and those little uh, microwavable mini hot dogs, those, he loves those too. But other than those two things, it is entirely us. He just wants to be with us. The affection, the acceptance. He's not unaware if I am unkind. If I do something move, like move quickly and it seems like I'm threat to him, he'll, do, he'll back up. I've never heard him, but if I'm not paying attention to him, he's, a, he, he's not oblivious to it. But man, he's always there. 
His life is to show us love. That's how your heavenly father looks at you. Too many of us have lived under a religious rock for far too long, thinking God's mad, he's pissed, you did too much. He's like, I did all this for you and you can't even go to church more than a couple times a year. What's wrong with you? You keep doing that same old sin. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Doesn't mean God is okay with or wants us to continue sinning. Doesn't mean he isn't aware when we do. He wants us to move away from those broken patterns because of how much he loves us and how he knows what by now we know, which is that those things only dig us deeper in the mud and leave us more worthless feeling than before. Christ Jesus died for us. That's what the book of Romans teaches and was raised for us. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond in worship. I would like to take just a moment and pray for you. And I think some of us, if we're honest, would say, you know what? I know a little bit about God. I'm a Christian. Maybe we've never heard any of this before and somebody invited us to church today. Wherever we are, be right where you are. If there's anything we can just drop and leave on the floor, it's pretense. Be where you are and as you are, and Jesus Christ will meet you there. He died on a cross because we couldn't get it right ourselves. There's this apocryphal bit of wisdom that used to be quoted like it was from the Bible, except that it's not. It's the opposite. And it says, God helps those who help themselves. I think the sum of the scripture's wisdom is maybe exactly the opposite. God helps those who haven't a prayer of helping themselves. If you can help yourself and you got it figured out, you don't need him. But he said, there's not one who is righteous, who is rightly ordered, who is whole. And I know what's inside me. I'm not trying to fool anybody. If we confess our sins, it says that he is faithful and just because Christ paid it. He doesn't re-prosecute the crime to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this morning, I think it's a good time. I think it's a great time for some of us to come on home. So I just didn't want to invite you. Come home to Jesus this morning. God loves you with an everlasting love. He's not disappointed. He's not shaking his head. He's running out to meet you. Hurley might be in a deep nap. He gets like 20 solid hours a day. But if he hears me opening the door, he's down the stairs waiting right there for me to come in. Your heavenly father's like that. He's not a dog, but he's waiting at the end of the road. He hears you're coming home for Easter. He's like out the end of the driveway saying, I don't even need you to finish the sentence. Daughter, son, welcome home. Welcome home. I love you. If we could just bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to pray with you. If that's you and you want to come home to Jesus this morning, your Father's arms are open wide. He loves you. You're the why. 
His resurrection power is waiting to resurrect your life. It's not too late. You haven't gone too far and you haven't done too much. He'll meet you right where you are. I'm nothing. He's everything. My words count for zero. But if you hear his voice in anything I'm saying, friends, open your heart. Don't harden your heart. This is your resurrection day. And if that's you and you need to come home this morning, you get a fresh start. Would you just slip your hand in the air? You can stay right where you are. We're not looking to embarrass you. We're not looking to draw attention to you. Just want to pray with you. We're all going to pray together. If that's you, just slip your hand in the air. Okay, I see you. I see you. It's between you and Jesus. Okay, can you put your hands down? Can we pray this together? Would you just repeat after me? It's not your words, it's your heart. Just pray in faith. Dear God, just pray it out loud. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to this world, showing me how to live, and dying for my sin. Thank you that you paid the price so I can be free. I want to live. Can I have a fresh start? I invite you in, and I choose to make you Lord. I confess I'm a sinner and I need your grace. I choose life today. In Jesus' name.